Thank you. It's uh, good to be with you this morning. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. I've been preaching for a while, as you probably gathered from what Dan said earlier. Uh, I was just thinking as I was sitting there, I started preaching uh, just over 61 years ago on a fairly regular basis, uh, though some got limited during... Uh, during uh, my seminary years, uh, but it started our the first year that Barbara and I were married. We were still at uh, Columbia Bible College in Columbia, South Carolina. It's now Columbia International University, and uh, our our two girls went to the same school. And Barbara and I met at Columbia. Our girls met their husbands at Columbia. And now our youngest granddaughter is in her last semester. Uh, she's teaching Bible at uh, a Christian school in Charlotte, North Carolina, as her practice uh, teaching her to finish her degree. So we've had a long connection there. But I started preaching at a little church my senior year in uh, Bible college. I'm not sure how much the people got out of it but I sure got some experience. Anyway, it's lovely to be with you. And if you uh, have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Um, and uh, that follows 1 Corinthians, which follows Romans. Uh, so you can find it there fairly easy in the New Testament. We're only going to read a few verses, and I'm only going to refer to part of that in the course, because what I want to do is introduce you to this book. Uh, actually, we'll be trying to introduce you to the whole Corinthian uh, ex expression as we have it in the New Testament. So, reading from... Chapter 1, verse 1, 2 Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, Achaia being the province in which uh, Corinth was located. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then come some very encouraging words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, 
For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these letters that the Apostle wrote to the church at Corinth. We ask that you will give us some insight into what is happening, what was happening there, and to to apply it to our lives in our own day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't have to convince you that the United States is in a mess, I'm sure. I know that some Christians have even stopped watching the news on television because uh, it's so discouraging. It makes them angry, angry about what's happening or discouraged about what's happening or angry about the way it's being presented. I recently finished a book, a book by Rosaria Butterfield. It's her latest book, and it's titled Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. Now, that five lies is not an exhaustive list, of course, but these are the ones that she chose to write about. Lie number one, homosexuality is normal. Number two, Being a spiritual person is kinder than being a biblical Christian. Number three, feminism is good for the world and for the church. Four, transgenderism is normal. And five, modesty. Modesty is an outdated burden that serves male dominance and holds women back. Well, we're not going to look at all those uh, issues, but it's part of what's, what we face as Christians. These are lies that she said she believed and taught when she was a professor at a university up in Syracuse, New York. It was part of her life when she was a practicing lesbian before she became a Christian. And the worst part, as she looks at it in, in, the, in that book, is that these lies have been accepted and uh, taken in by churches. And not just those churches that some of us refer to as liberal churches, but evangelical churches are accepting some form of these views. And so the question comes, how should Christians respond to the evil that's around us in the world? And what should your church here in Chambersburg do in the world that we live in? Is there some place in the Bible that we can go to get some help in dealing with these kinds of things? And I think there is. And the place that I like to turn people to is in these letters to the Corinthians, both letters, first and second. You know, I, I love the church in, in Corinth. It was a church that was born in difficulty. 
It was plagued with problems, and it ministered in a very difficult city, a city that's very much like modern American cities and cities in the Western world as a whole. I'm thinking of Europe. It was a city, it was a church, rather, that that had a diverse group of people in it. There were intellectuals who wanted the church to uh, appeal to the philosophical minds of some of the people in that community. There were the pragmatic businessmen who wanted to be free to do some things that were morally questionable at the very least. There were the experience-oriented people. Uh, We might call them first-century charismatics. You see a, a whole section in 1 Corinthians dealing with that issue. And there were people who wanted to press for a life of asceticism. Just don't, don't, don't. And it's no wonder that the church was in danger of fragmenting, fragmenting into a a dozen different denominations. Many of these problems are seen in 1 Corinthians, and then 2 Corinthians continues the story. Before we look at the book, though, I want to uh, take a couple of minutes to look at the city The city was a big city for those days. There were some 250,000, a quarter of a million people uh, that were free men, and we're told that there were probably 400,000 slaves living in Corinth. It was a city of commerce, a prime, that that was what it did. It was located geographically uh, right next to an isthmus. You know what an isthmus is, like the isthmus of Panama? It's, it's a narrow neck of land. In this case, it's a narrow neck between the main body of Greece and the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And, and uh, ships would come in on the, on the one side and then the goods would be transported to the other side of that isthmus. Sometimes they actually pulled the whole ship out of the water and dragged it the four miles across and put it back in the water on the other side. Must have been small ships. Anyway, they wanted to have a canal through there even back then when uh, in Paul's day, but the technology in the first century wasn't up to the job, but by 1893, a a, a canal was dug through, but it was pretty narrow, 80 feet wide at at sea level, just a sea level canal running through between the Aegean and the Adriatic Sea. The, uh, The canal being only 80 feet wide is not wide enough for modern, modern ships. Uh, 
but the canal is still there and it's something of a, a tourist attraction today. Culturally, culturally, the uh, Corinth was a Greek city. It didn't have a university, but even so, there was an interest in Greek philosophy. You know, those Greek philosophers like Aristotle and so on. It was a pagan city. In the heart of the city, there was a temple to Apollo. And up on the hill on the south of the city, there was another temple to the goddess Aphrodite, or as the Romans called her, Venus, the goddess of love. We might say the goddess of sexual love, because at that time there were about a thousand prostitutes working in that temple. The influence of the city was to promote, or of that, that uh, pagan temple, was to promote widespread uh, immorality. In fact, the name became of the, the name of the city became synonymous with sexual immorality. And it was there that Paul came to start a church. We can read all about it in Acts chapter 18. And uh, it was part of his ministry on his second missionary journey. It was right after he left Athens that he came to Corinth. And it's from this particular time that we, we get the term tent maker. You know what a tent maker is? Uh, it's a term that's used for a preacher who preaches the gospel but supports himself financially by some trade, some work that he's doing by a job that he has. And the name comes from the fact that Paul was a tent maker. We're told in, uh, in Acts chapter 18 that Aquila uh, came from Rome uh, with his wife Priscilla, and he, that is Paul, went to see them, Aquila and Priscilla, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. There's the tent maker. And Paul and Aquila and Priscilla, they were making tents. And Paul was preaching as much as he had time to do in Corinth. Now, I'm convinced that when Paul came to Corinth, he was tired. And he was discouraged. He was feeling the pressure of all that had been happening in his life. I say that for a couple of reasons. We'll come to another one later. But you see, he was mistreated in, in the cities that he'd been recently, up in Macedonia, up to the north. You remember, perhaps, that when he went to Philippi and he preached, they, they uh, threw him in jail, they beat him, and they put him in jail, and then they drove him out of the city, and, and the, then he was driven out of, uh, out of the next city, he was driven out of Berea, and he was driven out of Thessalonica. When he got to Athens, he preached, but 
There's no indication in the scripture that any church was formed in Athens, though there was one in Berea, and there was one in Thessalonica, and there was one in Philippi, and we have letters that were written to Philippi and Thessalonica. So he needed some encouragement, and God gave Paul a special revelation for his work there in in Corinth. God said to him, said to him in verse 10 of chapter 18 in Acts, I am with you. No one is going to attack and harm you. And I have many people in this city. And therefore, he told Paul that he was responsible not to be afraid and to keep on speaking. God was going to bless the work that he was doing in Corinth. And these are promises that are important to every church planter everywhere in all time, that God is with you. You're not alone. You're not in this project by yourself. If you were trying to do it in your own strength, it would be hopeless, and it is hopeless in our own strength. But God is able to bless the work that men do in presenting the gospel. The second promise, well, that's different. It was a promise for Paul and for that time in that place. And I say that because, as I already mentioned, he'd been beaten and thrown into jail in Philippi. He was beaten and uh, in other places. In fact, Paul, in, later in this book, compares himself with people that are referred to as super apostles. Well, that was his title for them because that's what they thought they were. They were actually leading the people astray in some ways. And he says, he says this in comparison to the super apostles. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and, the day, and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So this is not a promise to Paul for all time and for every place. And certainly it's not a promise to church planters that they can assume that there will never be a problem in fact, I can testify 
we had time, I could give you examples of people that did things to try to undermine the work that we've done in various places. But it encouraged Paul at that point, and he kept on going. The third promise has that word, many. And I suppose that word is open to interpretation, how many is many. My, my wife often reminds me, well, maybe not often, but from time to time, she reminds me of something that I said when we were driving through the area that, where we were planting the third church in Perth in Western Australia. And I said to her, God has his elect people here, and it's our job to find them. And you know what we did? We found, we found them one after another after another. I wish I could tell you stories about them, but you don't want to stay that long. God does have his elect people here in Chambersburg. And it's your job as a church to find them and to bring them the message of the gospel and to bring them through to faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you don't know what that means, talk with someone around you. Talk with somebody that you made a contact with. Talk to one of the leaders here in the church and find out what it is to put your trust and your hope in Jesus Christ. The church was established, as we said, in spite of opposition, in spite of the Jews, and in spite of the entrenched position of paganism in the community. But it was a church made up of people who brought with them the cultural baggage and the habitual baggage of their past. Paul's description of their background is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 9. He says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he adds this. But, and such, such were some of you. This is what you were like. All those things, thieves and drunkards and swindlers, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You know, we're inclined to emphasize that statement there, and that is what some of you were. Some of you were. I think that there are many in Reformed churches today that would raise doubts about so many of the people in the church at Corinth because they struggled with these things. 
Could they really be Christians? They were struggling with these kinds of temptations. But it seems to me that Paul is just trying to get the Christians, these people who profess Christ there in Corinth, to live up to who they are rather than live by what they were. They're not perfect yet, but they're moving. John says something similar in his first letter in 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. You see, a sinful lifestyle is declared to be inconsistent with a new life in Christ. doesn't mean we're perfect. doesn't mean we don't struggle with some of these old temptations. But there is a change and there is a power that is now available to us, and we're responsible to use it and to apply it in our lives. Now this second letter to the Corinthians. It's a follow-up, obviously, to 1 Corinthians. But actually, it probably is the third letter that Paul wrote to this church. Because in chapter 2, he makes reference to a letter that doesn't appear to be 1 Corinthians. So it's a letter that is lost. We don't know exactly what it said. But I, I'm sure, and I'll assure you, that... Had it been something that should have been part of the Bible, God would have seen to it that it was preserved and, uh, and that we would have it. It appears that some of the instructions given in 1 Corinthians were being rejected, and others were being overzealously pursued. The rejection of the teachings that Paul gave them through uh, that letter, 1 Corinthians, was based on, on the proposition, the suggestion, that Paul wasn't really a proper apostle. And therefore, he had no authority to tell them what to do and how to live. And that's why... This book, this second letter in particular, has as one of its purposes to reestablish Paul's credentials and his authority. In the process, we have a great opening of the apostle's heart. We find out what's going on in, his, in the depths of his soul. This book has more autobiographical material about Paul and his heart than any other place in the Bible. I know Acts spends chapter after chapter telling what he did and what he, where he went, but this is the book that opens his heart. There are also some very practical matters that are covered in this book. We have an example of when to defend ourselves and when not to defend ourselves. It depends on what's at stake, you see. Is it just my feelings that have been hurt by what people are saying about me? 
You've been in that place, and you just have to let it go. But is it the, if it's the gospel that's under attack, then we have to take a stand and defend the gospel. And if that includes defending ourselves, we need to do that. We have some very helpful information about church discipline, why it's done and how and, and uh, what its goals are. We have some helpful descriptions of ministry. Paul I think, gives us his goal in ministry in this book. And it was a goal of reconciliation. He writes, We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And that's in chapter 2, verse 20. It's one of several places where this theme of reconciliation comes to the fore in this book. And he also gives us the motive for his ministry. His motive was the glory of God displayed in the new covenant. These two things go hand in hand. The goal of reconciling people and showing the glory of God in that work. We also have in this book one of the most important descriptions of New Testament giving and generosity. I understand, spoke with your pastor, and I know he was going to be speaking on it a week or so ago. Now we come to the opening of the book itself. And in this, these opening couple of verses, we have the standard pattern for writing letters of that era. The writer identifies himself. Paul begins his letters uh, telling who's writing, and he words it according to the situation that he's facing. For example, in writing to the Philippians, He says, uh, he calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus, along with Timothy. Because there's little confrontation in the book of Philippians. He's writing to people who have been standing with him and working with him. A few things that he wants to correct, but basically it's not a a hard, hard sell book. But in 2 Corinthians, where his authority is under question, he writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. He's he's staking his claim. He doesn't call Timothy an apostle. He refers to Timothy as our brother. And who does he address? I would like to include going back to 1 Corinthians because who he addresses is, is the same people, but 1 Corinthians has a little more in the opening three verses. He writes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, that is, they're set apart to be his, and called to be holy. We sang a lot about being holy in the early part of our service to 
today, we sang holy, holy, holy. And it's not just God who is holy, but because he is holy, he wants us to be holy as well. So we said earlier, Paul wanted them to live up. He wanted them to live up to what they were in Christ. This letter, however, is not just for those living in Corinth in the first century. It's for all of us. We are included when he says, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we've been doing here this morning, calling on the name of the Lord Jesus in our prayers, glorifying him in our songs? All those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And then, and then in verse 3 of chapter of uh, 1 Corinthians and verse 2 of 2 Corinthians, he has a benediction. You know, benedictions aren't always at the end of a book or at the end of a service. Here's a benediction right here at the beginning of this book. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that something you want? You need God's grace because we're sinners. And we need peace because the world around us puts us in turmoil. I would like you to think about benedictions as you're reading your Bibles on your own and keep an eye open for them. They occur in a lot of places in Paul's writings, and uh, often they begin with the word may. If you find a verse that starts off may, maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a benediction, a blessing that is being pronounced to you. So this book, 2 Corinthians, it's not quite as dramatic as 1 Corinthians, but it is of real doctrinal and practical value to us. And I hope that as you are doing your Bible reading, you will, at some point, take time to read the letters to the Corinthians, read them carefully, and see what it tells us about the church and what our part is in being part of the church of Jesus Christ. And also to notice the kind of man that Paul was as he opens his heart at various points through the book. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the church at Corinth, for the example they give to us of living and growing and developing in a place where there is, there was much evil and immorality and opposition. And we find ourselves feeling the same kinds of things in our day. And we ask that you will bless us and help us to take a stand for you and for the gospel in our place. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.